Again, it is a joy to be here in the house of the Lord, to celebrate all that he has done for us, to remember all that he has done for us in Christ, and to hear from him in his word. That is one of the things that I hope you have come expectant for today. Um, that the words of the sermon, I hope you understand, are not, at least I know that Bruce and I share the same conviction, are not our own words. We seek to not be inventive, uh, but to find the true meaning of the text and expound it for uh, the sake of all of us, including myself. Um, I preach this not only for you or to uh, be heard or seen or applauded, but so that we all might come to know God better, and that is my task, and that's why I come to this task joyful today, because I, I find real hope uh, for my own soul here, and um, I'll just mention one of the challenges of preaching as an associate pastor is I preach so infrequently, I don't really have a clear plan of attack. Um, when you're preaching a one-off sermon, it's hard to know which one to preach, um, I've tried maybe to do some themes. I've tried to hit on big, important passages. Um, we've recently have preached on, you know, the salvation, you know, the being born again, preached on um, the fruit of the Spirit and what that means to be free in Christ. Um, this week, I, I really was struggling to, to find something that felt like it would land that I, I really felt good about until last week at family camp. And Dr. Jonathan Pennington, in his talk on educating your emotions, um, educating your emotions, brought to mind something that I have found immensely helpful in my own life, and I, I just wanted to bring back um, for us today some insights from a concept that's very similar to that from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an early 20th century Welsh pastor who was formerly a medical doctor before he became a minister. And this is what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said. He said this, Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. That concept is very similar to what Dr. Pennington spoke to us about. But this specific concept of talking or preaching to yourself comes from a series of sermons that Lloyd-Jones preached on the topic of spiritual depression. And that itself was launched from Psalms 42 and 43, which is our text today. We'll read those in a moment. Um, but you can find those sermons published in book form at the same title, Spiritual Depression by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I would highly recommend this book to you. It's something of a Christian uh, classic. While it's impossible for me to summarize all of what he says there, several insights you hear today are owing to largely his own insights, um, maybe even uh, borrowing from, I try to give credit where credit is due. But before we read Psalms 42 and 43, I have two questions that I'll address briefly. First, why is this important and timely? And then second, why is the topic so challenging? to talk about spiritual depression. First, why is it important and timely? Martin Lloyd-Jones gave his own answer to this question when he first preached the series back in 1954. So, 
two years before the founding of this church, actually. For him, it was a mixture of current world events at the time and the persistent attack of Satan on God's people. And that problem that that led to was that Christians had an appearance of unhappiness, a lack of joy in their faith, a downcast spirit or soul. And it's understandable given the events that Martin Lloyd-Jones lived through. If we think things are bad today, and I'm not denying that things may be bad today, but let me remind you of the current world events that Lloyd-Jones witnessed prior to preaching this series. He was 15 when the First World War began in 1914. He was in London at grammar school when some of the first airstrikes were being carried out by German zeppelins on the city of London. World War I was immediately followed by the global Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920. That pandemic claimed the life of his younger brother. The pandemic was immediately followed by, or closely followed by, the Great Depression of the 1930s. Global economic depression, not just American problem. And that was followed by World War II from 1939 to 1945, which in in Britain claimed the lives of 384,000 soldiers and 70,000 civilians. 70,000 civilians. Almost half of which were in the city of London, where Lloyd-Jones preached and pastored. That is, count it, 31 years of near-constant bad news on a global scale. We've had a couple of bad years, maybe a a decade or so, but 31 years of this type of global scale, the world felt like it was ending, I imagine, for people who lived in this time. It would be no surprise that we would feel downcast of spirit to go through the things that Lloyd-Jones saw. But in the aftermath of all those devastating events, Lloyd-Jones made the case, continued to make the case, that Christians of all people should be known for their unshakable joy. That their witness to an unbelieving world is at stake if they go about in the doldrums and therefore dealing with the issue of spiritual depression of a downcast or disheartened soul in believers is vital to defending the glory of God. The God who gives hope and joy and life in abundance to those who believe. Now this is a monumental insight. It raises several questions, like what does our outlook on the world or our own life problems say about our trust in God in who he is in what we believe he has done for us? You see, if we're constantly in a state of of quiet or maybe even unquiet dissatisfaction with the state of our lives or the state of the world around us, if we're troubled and downcast, worried and deeply anxious and somber, if we're gloomy and just hopeless in our outlook on life, we have communicated with little or no words at all that we believe in a God who is powerless to affect real joy and hope and peace in our lives. And I would suggest to you that that is not the God of the Bible. That is a Christless Christianity. That is an evangelicalism minus the evangel. This is faith without trust. It is an attempt at a godly life with no reliance upon the God who gives life. 
that's a dangerous path to take. It's no wonder that downcast Christians have lost credibility and influence on the unbelieving world around them, as, Dar- as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. This is crucial for defending the glory of God. Or as Dr. Pennington reminded us, we must not lose sight of the fact that Christ gives us a better way to live. He just does. He is all about the good life. So does our faith show that the way of Christ is really the way of life? Is really the good life? You see, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that people are immensely pragmatic. They ask the question, does it work? And I think that's still true even today. Not just is it true, but does it work? Does the Christian faith work? Now, we don't want to rob the Christian faith of its truth, of its goodness, of its beauty. But at the end of the day, we ought to say in the same breath that yes, the Christian faith, the hope of heaven makes an eternal world of good here on earth. That's an essential part of our witness to an unbelieving world. It is for our own good and ultimately for God's glory that we are called to overcome this sort of unhappy, dull, or dour existence or experience of the Christian faith. So either we joyfully believe the gospel, the good news of Christ, or we don't. Now, many of us have a professed belief, yet our lived experience does not match our doctrinal convictions. That should not be so. And it need not be so. This is important. I believe it's very timely for us. Now, I want to be clear. That doesn't mean that we're not going to go through seasons of being downcast, of being despondent. It does mean that they should only be seasons. Only seasons. There should be an end in sight. We must fight for our joy in Christ for the sake of God's glory. That's what I want to commend to you today at the heart of this sermon. Um, Why is this challenging? It's challenging for a number of reasons, but Lloyd-Jones, as a former medical doctor, recognized especially this challenge, that we are complex organisms. We're made up of mind, body, soul, and these are interwoven and inextricable. And so finding the the root cause of our joylessness or unhappiness or depression, we might say, is difficult, right? It's why we say spiritual depression, and, you know, we're not denying that there might be clinical depression or physical things that contribute to you feeling down. Sometimes you might feel depressed because of your temperament, because of physical Uh, factors, environmental factors, lack of sleep, chronic pain, chemical imbalances, you name it. Other times, it is really, truly an underlying faith issue. A fundamental lack of trust in God or a disconnect of our faith on Sunday from Monday through Saturday. But rather than see these as different factors that are kind of diametrically opposed, Lloyd-Jones would suggest that the greatest enemy to our joy in Christ is the devil, is Satan, who uses any and every tool at his disposal to rob us of our peace and happiness, including physical and environmental and chemical and all those things. Do we believe that Satan is actively at work to use those things to rob us of our joy and peace in Christ? Absolutely. So please hear me say, if you're feeling down today, in spirit, depressed, joyless, far from God, or maybe forgotten by God, the answer to your unhappiness or lack of joy your feelings of depression may have more than a spiritual cause, but certainly not less. Do you hear that? 
may have more than a spiritual cause. Could be you need to get more sleep. Could be you need to uh, change your diet or exercise or you're on some medications that are messing with your head. Could be that. Certainly not less than spiritual because Satan is at work to use those things to cause you to feel hopeless and helpless and joyless. That's really important to say. You may truly need all those other things, sleep, exercise, counselor, therapist, those things you may need, but you absolutely and most assuredly need God to intervene in your life. You need to pick up the spiritual armor of God and fight the enemy of your soul. And the good news today, church, is that you're not alone. You have a God who fights for you and with you. There is a mighty fortress for you, an ally in this battle that is stronger than the enemy, and he will fight for you. So I realize that all of this is very challenging. I'm not attempting to solve all your deepest problems with this sermon. I couldn't even if I wanted to. But I do want you to see that you are called to overcome spiritual depression. It is a calling for Christians to have victory over spiritual depression. And it is possible. You're not called to the impossible. You're called and you're equipped to do what God is asking you to do. Because God has given you in Christ spiritual equipment to fight the enemy of your soul. So, that's the summary of the sermon, really. For the sake of God's glory and their own good, Christians are called and equipped to overcome spiritual depression in their lives. So we're going to blast through these psalms very quickly. Um, I'll read the psalms, very brief comments on structure, followed by three points. The symptoms of spiritual depression, the causes of spiritual depression, the remedies for spiritual depression. A lot of these are borrowing from Lloyd-Jones. We'll start with Psalms 42 and 43. This is reading from God's word. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? 
Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, these psalms are a pair. Um, I hope you've seen that just in the reading of them. You may be able to see that from the repeated refrain or the chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That occurs three times in the two psalms. In 42.5, in 42.11, and in 43.5. You'll see the same exact refrain repeated three times. We'll come back to this refrain. Another notable feature, or a couple other notable features that tie them together would be the close parallels of 42 verse 9 and 43 2. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And in 43 2, you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? We also see this theme of processional worship toward God's house or dwelling connected in 42.4 and 43.3, 42.4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Now, go to 43.4. Then I will go... Well, you could even go back to three. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. You see this idea of going to the house or the dwelling of God in worship. Images of water are both used positively as thirst quenching, as the deer pants for the water. So my soul for you, right? Familiar with? the old praise and worship song maybe, and negatively as pummeling waves of a waterfall. And that would be back in something like verse um, 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Prayer and praise, weeping and hungering and thirsting and doubting God and petitioning God and being taunted by godless enemies All of these themes are prominent in these psalms. But rather than go verse by verse, I'd like to treat this as the good medical doctor did, uh, Lloyd-Jones, by recognizing the symptoms, right? Finding the causes and prescribing the remedies for spiritual depression that the psalmist himself, uh, I think we see in these psalms. So first, the symptoms. Symptoms of spiritual depression manifests both internally and externally. Um, I'm going to spend more time on the inner symptoms than the external, but the first one is very clearly feeling that you are dying of thirst for God. Now, I could say feeling that you're desperate for God, but that doesn't quite get at the, at the image, I think, here of the deer longing for the water. Look at how it begins in verse 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, When shall I come and appear before God? This is not a a scene of serenity 
um, this deer in a forest glade somewhere drinking from a pool, it is one of two things, and commentators have, have gone back and forth on this, it is either the harrowing scene of a predator and prey chase, right? The deer being chased by a predator and therefore out of breath and desiring a drink of water. I think that is upheld in the text when we have the idea of the adversaries um, that are, are constantly present here in this um, text, um, the adversaries that are taunting. Um, maybe we have that predator-prey relationship, the enemies, the ungodly, the oppression, um, being hard-pressed by an enemy. Uh, it could also be the image of just merely a drought, um, a lack of water. And that, of course, brings to mind what I've just said about going through seasons. Um, we know this from our own experience. Um, a deer could, of course, uh, all animals, all wildlife uh, tend to suffer in seasons of drought, just like humans do, to find water. And we certainly resonate with that experience in the seasons of spiritual dryness um, that we experience as well. What it means to long for and thirst for God to be present in our lives. So again, this is a desperation. Um, the, the desperation of the deer is illustrative of the psalmist's soul longing for God. I think both options, again, are, are kind of valid. Um, maybe both are intended. Um, there are maybe uh, times of dryness in your life that cause you to feel joyless. There will also be moments of persecution from enemies that cause you to feel hopeless. In either case, it is good and right for your soul to long for God. Um, I would go as far as to say that God uses such circumstances often to increase our longing for him. He is the source of your life. Without him, you would surely perish in the heat of the chase or in the dryness of the drought. So when you feel that deep desire, the longing for God, it it is a good thing. The second um, symptom would be feeling that your spiritual life is eroding away. And I use that word eroding away for a very specific reason. The word translated in our version as cast down really communicates something more severe than depression or despondency, um, though that's kind of how we understand it. It means something like melting away or vanishing, disappearing, eroding Why are you eroded, O my soul? Communicates a spirit that isn't merely experiencing a low spot, but a spirit that feels barely existent. It's fading away, like the hologram of Princess Leia in Star Wars A New Hope, right? Kind of glitching. The psalmist feels that there's almost nothing left. He feels as if his soul has been ground to dust. He feels crushed. This is the spiritual depression at its, really at its worst. This is the feeling, though it is not a reality, as the rest of the psalm clearly shows. So, third, feeling that God is far or has forgotten you. The psalmist is taunted by adversaries in verses 3 and 10. They question God's presence in his life. Where is your God? The psalmist himself questions God in verses 42.9 and 43.2. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Those questions are are natural in times of distress. And I want to particularly impress upon you and even more so the young people 
There is nothing wrong with expressing these questions and feelings to God in prayer. You see, it's quite different to question God to his face than to question him behind his back. It's a very different experience. The psalmist is not talking about God behind his back. He is speaking to God face to face. Now, the adversaries or enemy... Uh, desires to accentuate what the psalmist already feels, God's absence. Again, the feeling, not the reality. But it is something that you may truly feel. You may feel that God has forgotten you because of the horrible things that have happened in your life. You may feel that you have been rejected by him. You may legitimately feel this way, but that is not as it should be. That's ultimately a symptom of spiritual depression. And it's fueled by the adversary of your soul, the devil. So don't listen to the lies. Do not listen to the lies that God is absent. He is present. Another symptom would be feeling that you are drowning. We oftentimes use that language, don't we? I feel like I'm drowning. You see that in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roars of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He is being pummeled, crushed by the waves. This, uh, This deeps here it represents a sort of primordial flood a picture of chaos and the overwhelming power and vastness of an ocean of water and the, the deeps are calling to each other they're echoing the sound of these roaring waterfalls that seem to encompass the psalmist in other words he feels as if he is drowning crushed beneath an overwhelming flood maybe you felt like this before You feel as if you just cannot breathe, as if you're being crushed by life's burdens, responsibilities, or unforeseen circumstances. Interestingly, the psalmist speaks of these breakers and waves of the waterfall as being either ordained or at least repurposed by God. They are his breakers. They are his waves. It is his waterfall. Your breakers, your waves your waterfall. That's important. The psalmist is low-spirited, but he does see God in the midst of the flood. He does. Another feeling that we have would be the restless inner disquiet, this sense of being devoid of peace. We see that in the repeated refrain, why are you in turmoil within me? That word turmoil in the original language used to communicate the growling or, gro- or roaring of wild animals, the noisy tumult of a crowd of people, or an individual's moaning or groaning under pain or displeasure. You know what that feels like, don't you? You've moaned and groaned before. Or, to put it this way, the more internal variety of that, it's the equivalent of too much noise at the same time. If you've ever experienced something like this on a busy evening in your home where, I know this is true of me, where there, maybe there's background music playing, the kids are screaming, uh, the, the, the TV is on somewhere in the background as well, you're talking on the phone, dinner's cooking, lots of noise. Do you, you ever just feel like, can I just get some peace and quiet around here? Do you ever feel like that? Why do we, why do we say that, peace and quiet? Because we connect those two, don't we? Peace is a stillness quietness in our souls and here there's just noise just rumbling within you i've experienced this before and i'm sure you have as well 
It's the noise of our fears or anxieties that drowns out our inner quietness, the stillness of your soul. You can probably think of many times when you felt that. You may even feel it right now. Another feeling would be joylessness or un- lack of motivation to worship. That's somewhat implicit, but I believe it's present in the text. If you look at uh, verse 2, uh, the question, when shall I come and appear before God? You see, this does not question when God will show up for the psalmist, but when the psalmist will show up for God. We see this more clearly in verses 4 and 5. These things I remember, how I would go and lead them in procession to the house of God. The psalmist remembers a time when he would lead others in worship of God, but it is not the case presently. I would go. I remember that I would. It was a mere memory, not a present reality. And we see this again in the hopeful refrain, so put more positively, I shall again praise him. I remember how I used to worship. I look forward to worshiping in that way again, but I am currently in that, not in that state of mind. Oh, how often do we feel unmotivated to worship? Now, that symptom alone should give us all pause to consider the state of our souls, shouldn't it? I've said this before, it's convicting to think that I'm more moved by some piece of music or art in culture than I am by worship in God's house. That should be convicting for our souls. Do you feel like worshiping today? If not, take stock of your soul. Because a lack of desire to worship may reveal a a sort of erosion of your spirit that needs to be addressed. Again, this feeling is a feeling, and it, it is or ought to be temporary. The psalmist considers it as such. There is an end in sight. He says, I will worship again. These are the inner symptoms of spiritual depression. They tend to be more subtle or at least easier to conceal or suppress. The outer symptoms are more recognizable. They look similar to what we might call just regular depression, clinical depression. They're harder to suppress, but equally important to address. Um, They're a little bit more difficult to see in the text, but they're here. First is tears and mourning, accompanied by a lack of appetite. In 42, verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? My tears have been my food day and night. You see, the, the implication is twofold. One, that there is a constant flow of tears expressing the constant state of mourning that comes up later in the passage. It is sorrow and it is expressed. But secondly, the tears are the medic- metaphorical food of the psalmist. Translated from the word for bread, it implies that he, he actually doesn't have an appetite for literal physical bread. My food, my bread, has been my tears. All I've got the appetite for right now is crying. Maybe you've felt like that before. Like physically, I I can't even eat right now. Maybe you've been so overwhelmed with sorrow or grief that you cannot bring yourself to, to have an appetite. That's the experience of the psalmist. 42 9. And 43.2, repeat that question, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You see, the enemy has done his worst to oppress, and it has even affected down to the appetite of the psalmist. 
Much, a little bit of harder, harder one to spot is, actually much harder to spot, is what Lloyd-Jones brings out in the text, a gloomy countenance or appearance. Gloomy, despondent countenance or appearance. Lloyd-Jones pointed this out in his sermons. It exists in the original language, but it's often not translated into our English uh, versions. It's found in the refrain of the Psalms that recurs three times, remember? When the psalmist says, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Maybe your Bible has a note there, um, depending on your translation, but in the original Hebrew, the word face is included after the word salvation. Render something like this. I shall again praise him, the salvation of my countenance, my God. The implication for a saved or restored countenance, of course, is that the countenance was previously in need of restoration. And that's a most natural symptom of spiritual depression, a gloomy, despondent, joyless expression that we wear on our face. So as we've seen, spiritual depression manifests itself in a variety of ways, and recognizing this is the first step to diagnosing and treating the problem. So here are some of the causes. These are shorter. Causes of spiritual depression include a change of circumstance, situational causes. The text suggests uh, fewer causes than symptoms here, but the first one is a negative change in situation or circumstance. Clearly, the psalmist is not where he once was. Something has shifted. Something has caused him to weep rather than worship. He is kept from the house of God. We're told in verse 6 that he remembers God from uh, Jordan and Hermon from Mount Mazar, and it's kind of this uh, geographical zooming in, right, to this, this geographical area and a little bit more specific, and now to this mountain, to this Mount Mazar. And Mount Mazar, in Hebrew, Mazar is, means small or little, to the little mountain, the little hill. I remember you from this little mountain, Now, that seems to be contrasted with 43 verse 3, the holy hill of God. You've got the little hill and the holy hill. The psalmist is just in a different place. He's not on the holy hill of God. He's on the little hill. He's on Mount Little. And that is a different, very different place to be. It's taken him further from God and his house. Perhaps you've experienced this. Maybe you've had a big change in life, a death, a a loss of a job, a loss of a marriage, a loss of your identity in some form or fashion, physical or mental ability. Maybe you've lost a friend or you've had a massive moral failure in your life, something that really shakes you up and leaves you feeling as if God is far or has forgotten about you. In this world, you will have trouble. Circumstances change bad things happen, that can lead you to a place of joylessness, hopelessness, and spiritual depression. There can be entire seasons of difficulty, loss, or change that leave you just feeling spiritually drained. And that's the experience of the psalmist. Things have changed. I'm not where I once was. That's one cause, situational change. But importantly, there are adversaries at work here. There are enemies that cause or exacerbate your spiritual depression. And there's at least two types, the enemy within and the enemy without. Within, it's 
It's the self. The self is the problem. We see this when the psalmist doubts God's care and presence. He fails to remember God's truth, and he allows his feelings to take control of his mind, heart, and body. We recognize self as an enemy because it is the soul's despondency that is questioned. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. That command to hope in God tells us there's no real reason for the soul to remain cast down. Not not to be cast down merely, but to remain cast down. That's why I titled this sermon Overcoming Spiritual Depression. It assumes that you can and likely will become at some point spiritually depressed. You must overcome the internal enemy, the inner enemy of the self that remains in a state of spiritual depression. Take hold of yourself, as Lloyd-Jones puts it. Stand up to yourself. But this is not the only or primary cause. There are external enemies. The adversaries and enemies mentioned in verses 9 and 10 and also in 43, 1 and 2 as the ungodly, deceitful, or unjust. It's also likely that verse 3 refers to the adversaries of the psalmist when he says, uh, they, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's not entirely clear. You could read that and say, that is it the tears that are saying, where are your God? And maybe that's the inner enemy, right? The tears. It's his own self. But there is some textual variance there that lead us to believe that maybe it is connected to the, the adversaries. Either way, um, inner and, and external enemies. So, we may really experience ridicule for our faith, like the psalmist, um, from adversaries who taunt us by questioning God's presence in our suffering. But it is clear that our most powerful and dangerous adversary is Satan, the one who oppresses us by sowing distrust in God's promises and character. Where is your God sounds oddly similar to, did God really say? Both attack God's character, do you see? One attacks his truthfulness, and the other attacks his loving care and concern. Did God really say? Is that really what he said? Where is your God? Does he really care? As 1 Peter 5, 8 reminds us, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan has stock in spiritual depression. He is invested. He has a vested interest in keeping you subdued. We shouldn't be surprised by this. So knowing those causes helps us fight back for our joy in Christ by applying the remedies for our spiritual depression. And these are, I hope, extremely and immensely practical. This is the last part. Remedies for spiritual depression. First, preach to yourself. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones' big thing. Preach to yourself. Remember God's truth. We see that in that refrain again. The psalmist begins to preach to himself rather than listen to himself. Why are you cast down, O soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I command you, soul, to hope in God. That's a command. He's exhorting his own soul to have a confident trust in God. That's really practical. In order to fight spiritual depression, you must often remind yourself of what's true. I remember a few years ago, uh, we were traveling to Florida um, to see family uh, from Illinois, 
and um, I think it was something like seven or eight weeks that had been constant clouds, not a single sunny day. This is several years ago. Gloomy, depressing, cold, and dark. But as the airplane lifted off the runway, our perspective changed. We could at first only see the thick layer of clouds, you know, when you punch in and you can't see anything, it's just white. You're just covering the windows for like a blanket for a few moments. And then what happens? Boom! The sun. It's there. It's there. It never left. There was the sun in all of its glory and splendor and beauty. Never left, never stopped shining, never stopped giving off warmth. The clouds had veiled the sun because we were beneath it. We, it felt as if the sun was no longer there. But this was not the case. This was not true. It was a feeling, but it was not reality. You see, we must educate our emotions, to use Dr. Pennington's phrase. We must not allow our feelings to cloud the reality of God's care and presence in our lives. The psalmist does recognize and remember some truths about who God is, even at his lowest point. So starting with the refrain in verse 5, we see the psalmist calls God his God. That's notable because in in the, the first part he says, My soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, but he's not calling him my God. In the refrain, he says, my God, you are my God. And this God is the salvation of his countenance in that original language. I love that the word salvation appears here, or frankly, for that matter, anywhere in the Old Testament, because the word Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. It reminds us what we already know in the New Testament, that Jesus' name means salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Yeshua. God is my Yeshua, the Yeshua of my countenance, the Savior of my face, the one who saves. It is Jesus. We know this, of course, in this side of the cross, In this side of the incarnation, the original psalmist was probably not thinking of Jesus, but salvation, and we know that salvation is personified fully and finally in the person of of Jesus Christ. So, trust the one who saves. But notice how the psalmist looks to the future. He doesn't feel like worshiping in the moment, but he fully expects to do this in the future. I shall again praise him. I will do it. He is my God. He is my salvation. I will praise him. There is hope in these words. You may not be able to worship now, but you can speak in the future tense with the psalmist. I will worship again. God, help me do this. Again, God has called the psalmist rock and refuge in verses 9 and 43.2 and 43.4. He's called the psalmist exceeding joy. I would impress upon you to take each of these truths about God and preach them to yourself. Say this, God is my God and I am his. God is my refuge and rock. I can rest safely in him. God is my salvation. Jesus, Yeshua, the one who saves me from my sins, from my adversaries and restores my countenance. God is my life. He's the source of all and he sustains me. God is my exceeding joy. Preach those truths to yourself. 
Second, pray to God. Express your doubts and desires, petitioning his help. The psalmist takes his questions to God in prayer. That's hugely significant. You have permission to ask God why. You do. God can handle your questions and doubts. And as Dr. Pennington reminded us last week, our unprocessed emotions are the ones that typically come out sideways. So we learn a valuable lesson here, right? That God desires you to bring your raw feelings and emotions to him. Bring it to him in prayer. That's why we have so many lament psalms in the Psalter. That's why we have psalms of praise. That's why we have imprecatory psalms. We are intended to take all of our human emotions and feelings to God in prayer. The real question is, do you? Do you take your fears and crushing anxieties to God in prayer, or do you just let them run? Sometimes you don't have simply because you do not ask. Do you want joy? Ask God. Do you want to overcome the spiritual lows? Do you want God? He is the one in whom you are called to trust and hope. He is your exceeding joy. Call on him. Even when you don't feel like it, especially when you don't feel like it, especially when you feel that you are far away or he has forgotten you. Satan would rob you of your joy by convincing you that your prayers are ineffective. That's a lie. Your feelings are deceptive. Pray when you don't feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it will do any good. And ask God for his help. The psalmist petitions God to send out his light and his truth, that they may lead him, bringing him to the holy hill, to God's dwelling. And remember, in the past, he was leading others to worship. Now he's saying, I can't do that, God. But you can bring me. You can lead me to worship. Send your light. Send your truth. Now, there's different views on how we take that, but I tend to believe that God in his kindness and sovereignty ordained these specific words of Scripture to communicate something profound. That we ask the Father to send his Son and his Spirit to lead us in worship of him. The Son, the light of the world, the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, meant to lead us into the presence of the Father in joyful praise. That's not a perfect correlation. The the two are used of each other, right? The Spirit is also said to illumine or give light. Jesus is called the way, the truth, the life. But in either case, it's, it's hard not to see the deeper biblical themes of light and truth on full display in God's Son and Spirit. So we ask, Jesus, shine the light of your truth on the world. Shine the light of your saving grace on my heart. Lead me to the Father in praise Spirit, guide me into all truth. Illuminate the word of God for me. Remind me of all that Jesus taught and did and with the Son lead me to the Father in joyful praise. Preach to yourself. Pray to God and praise. Rejoice in God the Savior who is your exceeding joy. You see, remembering and rejoicing in God's salvation will lead to the inevitable conclusion of unbridled joy. Did you hear that? Remembering and rejoicing in God's salvation will lead to the inevitable conclusion of unbridled joy. Ask yourself, what has God already saved me from? God has saved me from death and hell. God has saved me from myself. God has saved me from my enemies. And as the song goes, there are 10,000 other reasons for your heart to find. 
that you may worship and rejoice in God and what he has done. So this is it. This is everything. We've seen the symptoms of spiritual depression, some prominent causes of spiritual depression. We've discovered the psalmist's remedy for spiritual depression. Preach, pray, praise. Each of these remedies I, I ask you to take hold of today. You've been given all that you need to overcome the drought of the soul or the dread of night. You've been given all you need to fight off the enemy of your soul, and you don't have to do it alone. You have a Savior who fights for and with you, Jesus Christ the righteous, Yeshua, the one who knew no sin yet entered into the fullest experience of human estrangement from God when he became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Yeshua, the one who cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is your savior. He is your salvation personified and he is your joy. So for the sake of God's glory and your own good and our witness in the world, do not remain in spiritual depression. If you find yourself there, you know what to do. Preach to yourself. Pray to God and praise him. You've been given what you need. Stop listening to yourself. Start talking to yourself. Stand up to yourself. And may the unbelieving world come to see that there is true happiness and joy found in the way of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you recognizing our thirst. God, without you, we would surely perish. We take, I want to take a brief moment now just for us to pause and take stock of our lives, of our hearts, of our emotions. God, would you still the noise? Would you quiet our souls within us? Would you send your light and your truth to lead us in worship? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. Father, do this in our lives. We ask for your sake and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.